0: Good evening. I am Christopher Polk, a professor of finance and the director of the Financial Markets Group Research Center here at the London School of Economics. Uh, Welcome to a public lecture by Philip Coggan entitled Paper Promises, Money, Debt, and the New World Order. I should first point out uh, that the Twitter hashtag for the event is LSEDebt. Uh, This event is being recorded uh, and if Technology Serves will be available online as a podcast uh, in the days ahead. And of course, uh, as usual at the LSE, there will be a Q&A session after uh, the lecture. Uh, Philip Coggan is the popular uh, Buttonwood columnist of the weekly magazine, uh, The Economist. Before that, he worked at the Financial Times uh, for two decades, uh, where he was the author of such classic columns as the Short View, the Long View, and last word. Uh, Philip has been voted Senior Financial Journalist of the Year in the 2009 Wincock Awards and Best Communicator in the Business Journalist of the Year Awards. He has written several books, including The Timeless Guide to the City of London entitled The Money Machine. The, title of the talk this evening uh, is the title of his latest book, published last year. So it's been only three years since catastrophe hit the global financial system. Even laymen have come to know that event as the credit crisis. Uh, Philip's new book uh, argues that both credit and the creation of money without intrinsic value, like the pieces of paper in your pocket right now, uh, are the driving forces behind many of the great financial crises of the 20th century, including current events in Europe. Uh, Moreover, he argues that recognizing uh, the importance of debt and paper promises to the system will help us understand how the global economy may evolve. Please welcome Philip Coggin.
1: Well, thank you very much, Christopher, and thank you very much. I'm very pleased to see so many people here. Thank you all for coming. Um, Just an hour ago, I went out with a couple of students who were writing something for the Student Union newspaper. And um, I did something miraculous. I handed over a piece of paper, a on the surface worthless piece of paper, and I got three uh, coffees in exchange. And that would have stunned our ancestors. When Marco Polo went to China, he was amazed that uh, the Grand Khan, as it was, was able to get people to buy uh, goods with pieces of paper, just on the writ of the Grand Khan. And that was. Uh, to Europeans at the time astonishing because they based all their monetary systems on metal. Um, And I was in an email exchange with a Hungarian journalist just the other day and he pointed out to me something even more nebulous about money, that he had bought the Kindle version of my book and used his credit card to do so. So he had made a electronic exchange of little bits on a computer and got a complete system of Um, bits in the form of an electronic version of my book in exchange. Um, You couldn't really create a more nebulous uh, example of a monetary exchange. Um, And modern money is not just paper, but predominantly bits on a computer. So when central banks go in for quantitative easing, the creation of new money to buy assets, they simply credit the computer account, the bank account, of the, per- of the uh, seller with new money. So it's as if a benign computer hacker had got into your account and instead of saying, you know, uh, I am the widow of the dictator of Nigeria, please uh, give me your bank account details and then nicking all your money, they'd actually done all that and given you some money instead. Um, but when you think about handing over a piece of paper to get goods, um, it's a mysterious business. Now why can't I hand over Monopoly money from my kids' Monopoly set? I mean, after all, some of those say 500 on them, I mean the Starbucks should be delighted to have a few 500-pound uh, notes in their till. Why can't I hand over Thai barts? Why can't I ha- hand over Colombian pesos? Um, well the answer, you would say, is that all those monies aren't legal tender in Britain. So. When you think about that, the paper money is an expression of faith in the state that it belongs to. Now, of course, the vast uh, majority of money these days is not notes and coins, but it's money created by banks. Uh, The the invention of fractional reserve banking, which sometimes gets um, uh, not seen as a benign invention, but the ability of banks to create money um, is the foundation of modern financial system. Uh, The vast majority of the transactions we make are through the banking system. But what is it that makes the bank money that we use acceptable? It is, as we saw in 2008, that the state stands behind the banking system and is prepared to bail out the banks when they fail. So again, the use of nearly all our money is an expression of faith in the government. So it's a bit like um, Peter Pan. At the end of Peter Pan, if you recall, the audience is asked to clap if they believe in fairies so that Tinkerbell uh, will survive. If we don't believe in money, if we don't believe in our government, then the entire monetary system would break down. Uh, and we saw and we've seen in both Ireland and Iceland that if the banking system is sufficiently large and it collapses, then this state uh, gets into financial trouble very quickly too. So the modern government thus has a very key role uh, in money. It needs to keep its money acceptable for internal use so that we are willing to trade with it on a daily basis. It needs to monitor its external value so it can buy uh, imports from overseas. And it needs, crucially, to be able to finance itself when it wants to borrow money at a reasonable rate. So if we look at Zimbabwe in recent years, it failed those first two tests. Its money ceased to be acceptable as a currency. There's a wonderful uh, picture on the internet, which you might have seen, uh, in a toilet which says, please do not flush Zimbabwe dollars down the loo. Um, because it had become literally paper. And that's what you know, paper, a lot of people thought would happen to paper money in the end, that it would become valueless. Uh, and Greece has now failed on the third of those definitions. Greece cannot raise money from outside investors at a reasonable rate. It has to depend on subsidies from its neighbours. Um, now, a second point about all this is that most money nowadays therefore is debt. I would argue really that all money is debt and that debt, most debt is money. So when we buy things we use our credit card, that's a debt to buy goods, we use a mortgage to buy houses and so on. Companies use um, borrowed facilities to buy assets. Um, so the issues of money and debt are thus closely intertwined. Uh, and. The key key date in history is 1971, which was the last point at which a link between money and precious metals uh, existed. When President Nixon abandoned uh, the link to gold in 1971, there were no longer any real constraints on the ability of societies to create money. And the vast increase in debt that we've seen since then has flowed naturally from that point. So let's get back to core principles and um, I apologize, I'm a humble historian when I'm speaking in front of all these economic students, so forgive me if I, if I seem too simplistic. But money really has two key functions. If you look in the economic textbooks, they come up with about 11 or 12, but I think there's only really two. The first is that one of buying the Starbucks. It's a medium of exchange, um, so it's very convenient to use money to buy goods. Um, and the second one is that we don't want to spend all our money immediately. We want to keep some of it behind for next week or next month or next year or for our pensions. So it's also a store of value. So those two functions of money are, in essence, in conflict because uh, we want, generally, if if I could use my monopoly money to buy goods, that would be great for me. But, of course, it wouldn't be good for the shopkeeper because uh, that money wouldn't really have any value. So we want more money if we want to do more uh, trade, and we want to restrict the supply of money if we want to maintain its store of value. Now, gold and silver, historically, were very good as stores of value. Uh, if you can go back over 2,000 years or so, and roughly speaking, gold has kept its value. Um, but they're not very good these days as an immediate medium of exchange. So a, a, an ounce of gold is about the size of a two-pound coin, but it's actually worth about um, £1,100. So obviously if you went into um, the supermarket or indeed the newsagent and wanted to buy uh, a paper f- and offered a t- an ounce of gold as your tender, um, be about a couple of atoms of it would be uh, sufficient to buy the sun. So this would be pretty impractical as a, as a means of medium of exchange. And the actual use of gold and silver in coins ceased pretty much uh, after 1914. Um, now, for many people, the very idea, and for most modern economists, the very idea that we should use gold and silver uh, as currency is ridiculous. Keynes described it as gold as a barbarous relic. And there's a, there's a my favorite quote is from a guy called Lord Addison, who was a labor peer um, in World War II. And he said, I'm unconvinced that digging gold out of the ground in South Africa and burying it again under Fort Knox is really a way to add to the wealth of the world. Indeed, I, I, if I remember, the Persians, the ancient Persians, they would, melt, they would melt the gold down again when they buried it. So you know, it really would be um, just moving gold from one place to the other. In the, in the Depression, when uh, there was a problem, because most of the gold was um, in the hands of the US and France, it wasn't distributed evenly around the, uh, the world. Uh, when you did um, international financial exchanges, There'd be the gold in the vault of the Bank of England. So what they'd do was they would merely take a label from one side of the vault which said British gold and move over to the other side of the gold uh, vault and say US gold if, the, if Britain needed to pay the US. So basically some people argue that the depression was caused because uh, the gold was in the wrong part of one room, <laughs> um, which seems a rather odd way of doing it. but. The key point about the argument in favor of gold is when you go to the other extreme. Once you can create money out of thin air, as we can now, what's to stop us from creating an infinite amount? And once again, the state is the the body that plays the dominant part in this process. So if you go back right into history, the practice of putting the king's head on coins, that states back to Lydia in the 8th century BC, was a way both of emphasizing the power of the monarch, uh, and of ensuring the acceptability of the currency. Still today, of course, we have the Queen's head-on currency, and still today we have the legend that I promised to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £5 on the £5 note. In the old days, you used to be able to go into the Bank of England and get £5 worth of gold in exchange. Now, of course, they'll just give you another £5 note. But still, <laughs> um, you can see economic history as a way, as through the Um, medium of the various coins that were acceptable. So once it was Athenian owls that were the coins you wanted to have, then you had the Roman solidus, Uh, you had the Byzantine Byzant, then you had the Florence, the medieval Italian cities were prosperous, so they had the Florin, which was still a coin in use in Britain in (coughs) 1971. So these things could last for a very long time indeed. But the trouble with... um, Governments is they often can't pay their bills So um, Roman emperors when struggling to pay their bills uh, Would find that the simple answer was if they didn't have enough silver they would melt down the silver add a bit of copper uh, And put out put out uh, the coins that say you know 80% form or 100% form so that their silver went further Uh, And if you didn't uh, do that then you wouldn't be able to pay your troops And if you couldn't pay your troops you were very quickly an ex-Roman Emperor So, from about the year 70 AD to the year 270 AD, the amount of silver in Roman coins went from 100% purity to 4%. So, that's a 96% decline in the purchasing power, if you like, of of a solidus over that period. Um, Interestingly enough, we went off gold in 1971, uh, at which point gold was $35 an ounce. It's now about $1,700 an ounce, which is a decline of 96 to 97%. So that's progress for you. Uh, The Romans took 200 years to do it, and we've done it in 40. So uh, don't let people tell you that mankind isn't moving forward. Henry VIII was another one who uh, pulled off this trick. And he was known at the time as old copper nose, because if you carry the coins around in your pockets for very long, then the silver on top uh, rubbed off, and the copper nose of Henry VIII appeared underneath. and it's an interesting thing in history, indeed, that um, we regard sovereign debt as risk-free, because sovereigns were very bad uh, debtors, indeed. The French had a tendency to execute their creditors, which uh, saves a of time.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> and um, they would frequently change the laws or decree medieval monarchs that they weren't going to repay their debts. And what could you do about it? Because uh, if you complain too much, you also would be executed. So, it's a very strange idea. Now, let's move forward. Uh, we're much more sophisticated these days. We have a n- huge fiscal problem in the Western world, and what are we doing? We have quantitative easing. Uh, now, that's not, of course, about monetizing the fiscal deficit. Perish the thought. It's all about reviving the economy. But it is interesting that the very point at which governments get into trouble, they are back again doing what Henry VIII and Nero did all that time ago. Now, there's a guy who features in the book called John Law, who's one of the most fascinating figures in history, who was a Scottish gambler who ended up at the court of the Regent of Louis XV. And the French had got into terrible trouble in the early 18th century. They had farmed out the uh, right to collect taxes to all these people who would buy it. And of course, what happened as a result of that was that the people who were the tax collectors robbed the peasantry blind, didn't pass all the money up to the government. So uh, the monarch got all the unpopularity of high taxes, but not all the money. And this was a terrible problem. So John Law was the first Keynesian, the first modern economist. He went to the regent and said, um, you think that wealth is gold and silver, and you have to wait for gold and silver to come in. Nonsense. Wealth is the farms in France, the manufacturers of France, the artisans of France. If we create more money, then more trade will occur, more tax revenue will come in, and you will be better off. So it was was either a Keynesian stimulus or quantitative easing, however you like to describe it. And it was one of the great bubbles of history. The word millionaire was coined when John Law was around, because suddenly... Uh, he, what he did was he had also the first emerging markets fund in history. He created this thing called the Mississippi Company and, and people thought, yes, it's bound, There's this wonderful new world, everything's bound to grow very fast, I must have shares in this. In fact, of course, it was all a, a fetid swamp, um, where all the settlers who went uh, died of uh, malaria. Uh, but he, had, he was a wonderful marketer. At one point, he marched a whole series of tramps with pickaxes through the streets of Paris on the way to the boat, on the way to uh, the Mississippi Basin, where they were going to work and discover emeralds and gold and all the rest of it. Uh, but unfortunately, that broke down as a tactic a couple of days later when the tramps had all mysteriously wandered back uh, into Paris and have not gone at all. So um, the whole thing, the whole law experiment, in fact, only lasted four years before it broke down. Uh, he tried desperate expedients to try and keep the whole thing going, but it all broke down. And uh, the whole idea of paper money was suspect in France, uh, and banking indeed, was suspect in France almost ever since. The French had a great love of gold in the 20th century. They're still not terribly fond of the finance sector now. And it, you could argue it's all down to John, to John Law. So if you look, go back to this idea of these two functions of money, the medium of exchange and the store of value. And then you think about creditors and debtors, you can see that those two parties want the opposite thing. So debtors want more money to be created, and creditors want the supply of money to be restricted. Creditors want to be paid back in real terms, gold as it was, and not in monopoly money. But debtors, uh, when they struggle, they need more money, more trade, and they want more money to be created. And this has often been a moral issue. So in history, uh, there's a Jewish custom called the Jubilee, which uh, we're about to have the Diamond Jubilee of the Queen this year. But the Jubilee back then was a date at which all debts were forgiven, every 50 years or so. And that was a way of wiping the slate clean. Uh, and it's interesting, I've I only just thought about it making a speech, that we're having these debt crises about once every 40 years. So maybe there's some sort of significance in the 50-year period. Um, and through history, there's been a strong moral component in the way that debtors and creditors have regarded each other. So usury was frowned on by the Catholic Church. And um, there's a very good book by um, Homer and Scylla, which I uh, went through in, in the course of researching mine, which looks at interest rates from the Babylonian time to the modern day. But that period from sort of 400 after the Roman empire went to about 1200, there were virtually no records because the church had clamped down on usury so there was there was very little lending and borrowing going on economic activity uh, was much reduced uh, and there, there were also um, many people who thought about the way that money should be borrowed so it was okay to borrow money to uh, develop a mine or uh, to put it to some useful economic purpose. Not okay to borrow money to finance consumption. Even Adam Smith thought this, so I'm not sure Adam Smith, though he's seen as the sort of um, founder of modern capitalism, would actually think that people should be going out and buying flat screen TVs on borrowed money. Um, and the modern co- outlook, of course, has, has emphasized this through the whole campaign for third world debt forgiveness, which is indeed called, one of the campaigns, it's called the Jubilee Campaign. They have the concept of um, odious debt, which is that money which is borrowed by um, countries under dictators or kleptocrats should not have to be repaid by the population who didn't get the benefit of the money and weren't asked whether they wanted to borrow it. But on the other hand, the the moral um, high ground was often claimed by the creditors as well. So uh, if you read your Dickens, you'll see that debtors were sent to prison. So Wilkins Micawber was always one step ahead of his creditors, trying to dodge them. And Little Dorrit is based almost entirely around uh, Mr. Dorrit, who ended up in prison for failing to pay his debt. Uh, after the First World War, President Calvin Coolidge, the British, proposed that um, we forgive, uh, German, they, they would forgive German debts if the Americans forgave the British debt. Um, But he thought this was completely immoral, and he said he had the phrase, they hired the money, didn't they? So if you'd taken on a contract to borrow money, then you should pay it back. That was your moral duty. And you could say that the German attitude to Greece today is something similar. They borrowed the money, they lived high on the hog, they should be responsible for paying it back. So over history, creditors and debtors have, have clashed over these issues, and creditors have tried to devise various systems to make sure that debtors don't get away with it. So the gold standard was the classic example of that. It was actually came about as an accident. Newton, Isaac Newton, who was head of the Royal Mint, set the price of silver too low. And there's a, a law in economics called Gresham's Law, which is that bad money dries out good. So people wanted to hang on to their silver coins and get rid of their gold coins. Um, so gold became the one that was more in circulation. Uh, and Britain was successful as an economic power in the 18th and 19th centuries. And other countries perceived that the gold standard had something to do with its success and gradually adopted it themselves. But this is a very slow process. Germany really sort of cemented the gold standard, the classical gold standard, by t- going on to gold in 1871 when it became a united country. But gold we went off the gold standard in 1914. So that the gold standard, which sort of Ron Paul and others talk about as sort of great period of history. That only lasted really 43 years. Now it was, in Britain, very successful at controlling inflation. There's a bit in um, Roger Bootle's book, The Death of Inflation, which shows that the price of a taxi ride was the same in uh, 1896 as it was in 1690. Uh, nowadays it's you know, far from short that the price of a taxi ride is the same when you get out of the cab as when you get in but, <laughs> but then it last 200 years. Uh, now of course in that period there were years of falling and rising prices due, generally, to uh, crops. Um, but over the long run, prices stayed stable. Now, that started to change in the late 19th century when uh, agricultural prices fell steadily. Uh, and that was good for industrial workers but very bad for farmers. So one of the uh, other characters, partners, John Law, that I focus a lot on is a guy called William Jennings Bryan. Now he was the kind of Barack Obama of the late 19th century. He was a fantastic orator. He was a democratic um, senator from a Midwest state. He ran against a a military veteran, uh, McKinley, who eventually got assassinated. Um, And he campaigned on behalf of the farmers. And he argued for what, in modern terms, we would call quantitative easing. He said that America should not just have gold as currency, it should expand and have much more silver in its currency and made this famous statement, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Now, as it happened, McKinley, uh, sorry, um, McKinley won and Brian lost. And at the very time that Brian was campaigning, gold was being discovered in Alaska and the money supply was expanding anyway. So uh, he, he sort of got his reward. Um, But in the terms of the policy he wanted, the policy effect he wanted, but he didn't get his reward in terms of office. In fact, he ran for the presidency three times. And he was, interestingly, exactly the sort of person who would be running as a Tea Party candidate today. He was a very religious man. He ended up um, in the Scopes Monkey Trial, where a teacher in Tennessee was um, prosecuted for teaching evolution. And Brian was the prosecuting... uh, key witness for the prosecution and was demolished by Clarence Darrow. It's a film about called Inherit the Wind. But those people who supported William Bryan now support the Tea Party today. Sorry, back then, support the Tea Party today. Now, the weird thing, though, is that they've reversed their position. So in the 19th century, they were all wanting expansion of the money supply. Now they all want restriction of the money supply. They oppose the federal, the existence of the Federal Reserve, uh, and they oppose fiscal stimulus as well. And it's weird that it's flipped round. Back in uh, 1890, the Republican side was in, uh, based on sound money. They didn't believe in uh, fiscal deficits and. Uh, uh, they, did, they, didn't, they didn't believe in money creation they, because they were the Wall Street party. There was a, a long-standing um, division in American politics between the Easterners, who were all in favour for, for sound money, and the Westerners, who, who were against it. But now, of course, Wall Street wants quantitative easing because quantitative easing keeps the asset markets going and going on. So it's very strange that the two things have flipped over. Um, but if you think about it, that discovery of gold in Alaska, and indeed the discovery of gold in California in 1840, which had a 1840s, which had a similar effect, hints at the very arbitrary nature of the gold standard. So this money was supposedly fixed in um, supply, but on occasion, suddenly there'd be a, a huge new addition to the supply, which would. Um, if reflate the economy just as in the 16th century, the Spanish went to Latin to South America and brought back all the silver and suddenly inflated the economy. So it seems an odd way to govern your economic policy that some guy with a you know a pan and a, a donkey uh, hits upon some gold in some remote part of the world and suddenly you're going for stimulus. It, it, it is a, it's an odd thing now because the gold standard was abandoned in World War One uh, because that nobody was prepared to send gold to their enemies around the world and the. The war was financed by, by massive debts and, and monetary creation. Um, and after the war, they never put the whole thing back together again. They did have something they called the gold standard, but no longer could, did you go around with gold coins and buy stuff with them. Gold was really the province of central banks. So instead of having money backed automatically by gold, you had money backed by a certain proportion of gold. But this is where the sort of faith bit of it starts to go awry, because if you can have money back, let's say that the amount of money in existence is backed 30% by gold, well why 30%? Why not 25%? Why not 20%? When the German, Germany went through the hyperinflation of um, 1923, 24 they then rebased the new currency. They said that the currency was based on the value of the land in Germany. Now, in a sense, this is nonsense, right? You, you can't sort of go in with a pound note and say, I'll have those three acres over in Frankfurt. That, that wouldn't work as a system, but enough people believe in it. So once, this was the start, really, of the faith element of money. Once you think that money is supported by the entire economy, you didn't need the idea of gold at all. Gold was kind of a relic for that purpose. Uh, and so we gradually moved away from gold from that point. Now, Barry Eichengreen, who's a great currency historian, argues that Gold only worked in the 19th century because there was an international agreement led by um, Britain where each central bank trusted each other. And when Britain got in trouble in the 1890s, when bearings went bust the first time, the French and the Germans lent Britain some gold to tide them over, Uh, obviously not likely to happen after the war. But after the First World War, international cooperation was uh, stymied by this argument about reparations, which lasted all through the interwar period. So you didn't have that same period. Secondly, gold standard worked because it's good for creditors. 200 years of stable money was very good for creditors. And the people who ran central banks were from the creditor classes. And the people who controlled governments were from the creditor classes. But once, after the First World War, you had democracies. (coughs) So no longer was policies being set solely for the interest of the creditor classes when you got to the 1930s and people were asked to keep on the gold standard uh, and require the population to make sacrifices to keep on the gold standard, they just wouldn't do it. So the classic example was 1931 in Britain. To maintain the, uh, gold, the link of the pound to gold, the Bank of England advised the government that they needed to cut unemployment benefit by 20%. And the Labour cabinet rebelled. Uh, including uh, Tony Benn's father and Peter Mandelson's grandfather at the time. And Labour fell in the face of this uh, demand for austerity and was replaced by a largely conservative-led coalition. Never happened again, obviously. Um, So we can see through all this the outline of of a pattern. So creditors impose a system to ensure that debtors pay back their money and when the burden becomes too much debtors can't repay the the money and the system breaks down. So let's skip forward to after the war. So Bretton Woods was a system set up after the war by Keynes and Harry Dexter White. And the idea there was that currencies were all linked to the US dollar because the US dollar was the dominant economy in the world and the US dollar was linked to gold. Now Keynes, um, absolutely brilliant man in many different ways, um, though slightly changeable and uh, erratic, but... um, he, he was mainly concerned with trade. He wanted a, what he thought would be a clearing union. So you, you think of countries trading with each other as like um, merchants and customers with overdrafts. So he wanted only a, a limit on the amount of overdraft a, a debtor country could have, but he also wanted limits on the amount of surpluses that uh, creditor companies could accumulate. Um, but the Americans... Um, said this was impossible. This, this um, system would mean that the Americans, who were always going to be a creditor nation, in their view, would be sending out goods and only getting funny money in return. So they vetoed the idea of any limit being placed on creditor nations. Skip forward 67 years, and Tim Geithner was proposing that there should be some limit on current account surpluses of China and other nations because America is now the debtor and China is the surplus nation. But, of course, it's only when you are a detonation that you see the wisdom of uh, limiting the rights of creditors. Um, Keynes also thought that floating exchange rates and international financial system was basically chaotic. He was more concerned about trade. So there were capital controls in the Bretton Woods system. So when I was a kid, uh, not many people went abroad on holidays anyway, but if you went abroad from Britain, the maximum amount of sterling you could take was £50 a cup of margaritas in some bar in uh, Malaga. Um, and, that, and people didn't go overseas, you couldn't buy overseas assets as easily, you had to pay a, what was called a dollar premium, you know, it was just no, nothing like the capital flows that we have now. So that brings us to one of the key elements of uh, international financial systems, which I'm sure you've studied in economics, which is called a trilemma. So you can have fixed exchange rates, an independent monetary policy, and free capital movements, but you can't have all three. So the gold standard had fixed exchange rates and free capital flows, but it didn't have an independent monetary policy. If you were losing gold, you had to increase interest rates and try and attract capital back. Um, Under the Bretton Woods system, you had fixed exchange rates and an independent monetary policy, but you didn't have free capital. Okay. Now, for a while... The Bretton Woods system worked fantastically. In fact, I don't think, in certainly European terms, you ever had such good economic growth as you had from 1945 six to 71. Now, part of that was the fact that, of course, the German and French economies had been wiped out by the Second World War, and there was lots of rebuilding to do. But still, it was a pretty successful term, uh, period in terms of economic policy. But the Bretton Woods system had a flaw, which was known became known as the Triffin paradox. And the Triffin paradox was that To oil the wheels of the system, you needed dollars because the dollar was the great reserve uh, currency of the world. But the more dollars that were created, either because the U.S. had a trade deficit or money was flowing out of the U.S., the less confident that other nations would be that they could exchange their dollars for gold, which was the anchor of the system. The U.S. kept its currency stable against gold. And the French, going all the way back to John Law, still being suspicious about paper money and wanting their gold, they kept on nudging the U.S. and saying, give us some gold, give us some gold. And um, the U.S. would And so all through the 60s this would happen. And eventually in 1971, uh, the French were demanding more gold. And President Nixon, on whom you can blame many things in the modern world, uh, he, um, he said, no, I'm not going to put up with this. So. The the onus on the Americans in that system was to change their economic policy to suit the rest of the world. Now, anybody who knows anything about American politics will know that an American president will never do anything uh, in the domestic policies to suit anyone outside the country. They'd be mad, rationally, to do so, because they then lose the election. So he didn't. He went off gold, and we got the system that we have today. Um, So what's our system we've had for the last 40 years, which is the essence of why we've got a crisis today. How did that come about? So it was unique in world history. There was no monetary anchor at all. There's nothing to stop the creation of money and debt. Um, And many people before that who thought, who wondered whether such a system could ever exist, said it would result in massive inflation. And for a few years in the 1970s, there was massive inflation. It was, of course, the oil shock, which helped along, but there was 25% inflation in Britain, inflation even in Japan, which doesn't have uh, inflation anymore, but would like some. Um, and so it seemed like the system was running away with itself. So out of the ashes of that system, we got a new... Nobody ever devised really a name for it, but a, let's call it a post-Bretton Woods system. And that was really brought into being by Paul Volcker, the head of the Federal Reserve, who raised interest rates so high uh, that he eliminated... <coughs> inflation from the system. And so you've got this idea that independent central banks with inflation targets, the Fed doesn't have a stated inflation target, but this, everybody knows it's monitoring it, will keep uh, pay, paper money from going out of control and will keep inflation down. And that creditors can therefore take comfort from that mm-hmm. and can own currencies uh, and assets even though there's no gold anchor. And there was no need, as a result of this new system, for currency controls, because you didn't need to keep the value of your currency stable. It didn't matter where the money went. Everybody thought the markets would sort it all out and that currencies would settle at some sort of natural uh, level, which would be fine. Um, the Europeans were different from that, but I'm going to come, come back to that in a second. But this. Um, Post Bretton Woods system, which with free floating currencies, capital flows all over the world, saw the sudden emergence of the finance sector to the fantastic prominence uh, that we see today. Now it's hard to believe. I know I was talking to a couple of students beforehand. Apparently, most LSE students want to be um, bankers, investment bankers, and hedge fund billionaires. But um, banking was once thought of as a dull sector. For those of us who are Britons, it was all about Captain Mannering. It was the sort of responsible chap who, um, not very imaginative, but you don't want him to be imaginative because you want him to make sure he gets his money back. The model was called 363. You borrow money at 3%, you lend money at 6%, and you're on the golf course by three. <laughs> this was not, this, when I was at college, this was not the business you wanted to get into. Everybody wanted to work for the BBC. Um, <laughs> Fund managers, that was not an interesting job to do. The the joke about fund management when I joined the FT was, why don't fund managers look out of the windows in the morning? And the answer was, because then they'd have nothing to do in the afternoon. (laughs) So this was a very dull... No, no, talk about, you know, master of the universe or anything else. But the last 30 years or so have been fantastic for the finance sector. The relative wages of the finance sector compared with other professionally educated people have shot up. Now, why was that? Well, it was because the tailwinds have really been behind the finance sector all that time. So more debt was created. So every time they lend money, that's a source of profit. Those debts didn't go bad, because we had this period called the Great Moderation, where we had very few recessions. There was one in the early 80s, so I'm And then there was a small one in the 90s, smaller one in the 90s, and a very small one in 2000. So from 82 to 2007, there was barely um, a big recession. Um, So the debts didn't go wrong. You lent money against assets, and the assets rose in value. So that was another source of profit. You traded in assets, that was another source of profit. There was a fantastic explosion in the volume of trading in currency markets, bond markets, equity markets. Every time they took their cut. That was a source of profit. Um, and, and as a result of that, debt was used to buy assets, and we had this whole series of asset price bubbles. So first, um, there was uh, one in emerging markets, then there was one in dot stocks, and then in housing. <laughs> Now, central banks could see all this happening. They could see that debt was rising in the economy. They could see that the financial sector was becoming more leveraged, and they worried what would happen if it stopped. So every time the markets wobbled, they cut interest rates to stop uh, any short-term weakness in the economy from turning into a repeat of the Great Depression. But, of course, the, the... logical consequence of that was that it gave speculators a one-way bet. They knew that central banks would not intervene to pop a bubble, but they did know that central banks would uh, intervene if markets fell. So this became known as the Greenspan put, that central banks would basically insure markets at a certain level. Now, one way of seeing this process is that finance became what economists call a rent-seeking sector, i.e. it imposes costs on the rest of the economy, unusual costs. So there's a very good book um, by Simon Johnson, who's the chief economist of the IMF, called 13 Bankers, where he writes about a woman called Brooksley Bourne, who was um, head of the the CFTC. She was trying to regulate derivatives. And uh, Larry Summers called her and said, I've got 13 bankers uh, in my office who say that what you're trying to do will cause the demise of Western capitalism. And so she was seen off. Um, But this is a perfectly uh, natural um, phenomenon in society. And uh, um, is we couldn't decide whether it was Manker Olsen or Mansur Olsen, but anyway, public choice theory states that you get uh, powerful forces in, in society that sort of embed themselves. So, uh, the more powerful a sector becomes, the more uh, it gets its influence increases and the more politicians and central bankers seek to protect it. Now that may be out of just fear that if the whole thing implodes, uh, then that will be bad for the economy. It may be out of greed and that the people who work for that sector contribute to the campaigns of politicians and they naturally well, want a price for that. Uh, but another interpretation is simply that making money in the modern world provokes a lot of respect if financiers are rich, they must be smart. That reminds me of a, an academic uh, joke, which you've probably heard before, but I'll tell anyway, which is that um, uh, some hedge fund guy said to a finance academic, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And he replied, if you're so rich, why aren't you smart? <laughs> um, so, anyway, because they were rich, therefore they, and therefore smart, they should be listened to. Uh, and indeed, given high office. So if we, and we've seen this throughout history. If you go back to the 1960s Robert McNamara was Defence Secretary under Kennedy because the auto industry was seen as the height of efficiency in the US economy not anymore of course um, and he was brought in to bring that kind of smarts into government um, and back then uh, it was argued that what was good for, gold, for uh, General Motors was good for the US economy and now of course it's what's good for Goldman Sachs Uh, is good for America. Now, this whole process of asset bubbles followed by rate cuts had only one logical conclusion, and we've reached it now. We have interest rates at zero, or virtually zero in much of the Western world, and we have central banks actually buying assets to prop their prices up. So this is where the the process had to come once you, you started down that route. Now, why is that a problem? Why can't we just keep going? Now, I think if you go back um, and think about it, debt is really an expression of confidence. I know some people borrow out of desperation, but either the borrower or the lender must be confident that the borrower will pay the money back. Indeed, they'll pay more than the money back because they have to repay the capital plus the interest. Now, when uh, when you're... In a growing economy it's easy to believe that because wages are rising that makes it easier for people to pay their money back. When house prices are booming it's easy to believe if you lend money on the back of the house uh, the uh, lender will be able to pay the money back. So you get a kind of virtuous circle in which a bank lends people money to buy houses. The ability to borrow money to buy houses makes more people able to buy them. So house prices go up which make banks more confident which means that more people buy houses and so on. So you get this kind of virtuous circle. Now, I don't know if Hyman Minsky has studied at the LSE these days, and uh, but hopefully he is, but he said that this had, this process led to its own destruction. So you had three phases. So at the start, you had what, the hedge phase of the cycle. So people borrowed money. They could both repay the capital and meet the interest payments. In the second speculative phase, People couldn't repay the capital, but could service the interest on a regular basis. And the third Ponzi stage was when people couldn't repay the capital or meet the interest. They were basically uh, just going to flip the asset uh, and sell it to a buyer almost immediately. And that's what we saw, of course, in the US and indeed a bit in the UK housing markets. You had people borrowing more than 100% of the value of the house. You had negative amortization loans which was a very complicated way of saying you weren't even going to pay the interest, it was just added to the capital value of the loan. Um, you had sort of people, um, amazing laxity of lending standards where people on sort of $15,000 a year incomes were at buying $700,000 houses. But they didn't worry about it because they weren't going to hold on to it. They were going to find somebody else to sell it to, the greater fool, as we talk about. Now, uh, all this. Um, has its consequences, um, but it's not apparent at the time. The trouble with asset fuel booms is it tends to make everybody think they're a genius. So if you're a trader, an investment bank, you think you're brilliant because you've uh, invested in assets and they've gone up in price. But it's all because the central banks are propping up prices and nothing brilliant about your strategy at all. Um, you think, indeed, central banks are brilliant. Uh, central bankers are brilliant. So John McCain famously said of Alan Greenspan that if he died, he'd put some dark glasses up and prop him up and still let him be in uh, charge of the Federal Reserve. Politicians think they're brilliant because the economy appears to be going well. So if you think about British political history, between 1964 and 1979, there were six general elections and and the uh, government changed party four times in that 15-year period when we were struggling. But since then, since the introduction of this asset bubble cycle. We've had two governments, one for 18 years and one for 13 years. So people, the politicians thought they were doing well and voters were willing to give them credit that they were doing well. And of course in these asset bubbles, um, things do seem to be going well. So the classic example is Ireland. If you go to Ireland on holiday as I do, you get, drive through Ireland and see all these houses that were built uh, that have since been abandoned. Now. Um, When you're building those houses, it boosts GDP. Workers are being employed to build the houses, you're buying the bricks and the glass for the windows and the electric wiring, and it all appears to be good. People are paying taxes, uh, VAT you know, on the the income taxes on their income, VAT on the stuff they buy, and so governments look to be doing well. But of course, if the houses aren't occupied, it's essentially uh, an illusion. Um, It's not quite the same example, but uh, Frederick Bastiat, talked about, oh sorry, Uh, Frederick Bastiat, who's a 19th century philosopher, talked about the broken window syndrome. So if you break the window of an office block, uh, a glazier has to come and mend the window and um, that counts as positive for GDP uh, because he's had to spend some money you have to pay him to mend the window. That does not mean, however, that the secret to economic success is for us all to go out and break all the windows of all the buildings we can see so that glaziers get employed. So sometimes, these factors can be entirely illusory. But nobody says during the bubble. very few people say during these bubbles that the emperor has no clothes, because everybody's doing too well out of it. So now we get to the stage where we no longer believe. It's as if we've run off a cliff like a cartoon character and we've suddenly looked down. We've started to doubt our ability to repay debts. And that's a problem in the Western world, because our growth outlook is much less promising. Growth, economic growth, as you know, capital formation is part of it, but the main two factors you need to think about are the number of workers and how hard or how productive those workers are. In most of Europe, the number of workers in any given economy will be flat or falling for the next 40 years. Workers can become more productive, but that tends to run at a fairly steadyish pace, about one or two percent a year. You know, there are countries, like Greece and Italy, you could argue there's plenty for them to do to make the economy more productive. But it takes a while for that to happen. It's not something that happens overnight. So growth, ev- it, with falling workforce, even just to keep the economy stable, would be quite an achievement. But unfortunately, of course, we've run up this huge bill, we've run up this huge uh, debt in relation to the GDP, on the assumption that we can keep growing and paying it off, but we're unlikely to keep growing and paying it off. And we've had all these other factors that were, appeared benign to us. For example, that prices were kept down in the 90s and 2000s by the arrival of Eastern Europe and China in uh, the global economy, which kept down prices, boosted our standard of living. Um, but they're now working the other way. So a good example is is commodity prices. We have ceased to be the price setters in the West. When it used to be that the West went into recession, oil prices fell very quickly because there'd be less demand for oil. But now there's plenty of demand for oil in the rest of the world. So even though the Western economy is struggling, oil is around $100 a barrel. Uh, And other commodities have been high as well. So that is uh, basically a tax on Western consumers which is weighing on economic growth. So if we're not going to grow the economy, uh, how are we going to deal with this debt crisis? Um, We also have a a further problem, which I should emphasise, which is that um, we have a lot of unfunded uh, liabilities and promises, other paper promises, which we've made to pension beneficiaries or in the US healthcare. So the unfunded public sector pension deficit in the UK uh, is around £1.2 trillion that's 80% of GDP. That's not counted in the official uh, debt-to-GDP figures. In the US, the unfunded uh, liability of individual states is $4.4 trillion, um, which is around a third of GDP, I think. So it's again another figure that's not counted for. So all those bills have to be uh, met on top of the uh, official debts that we've taken out. So if we're struggling with these issues, what can we do? Well, there's, th- there's three ways from here. So there's uh, stagnate, inflate, and default. So Japan is the stagnation option that we've seen. So Japan has been through all this. It had asset bubbles in uh, the 1980s in both equities and property. And from 1990... Nominal GDP has barely moved in Japan, it's risen per capita, but because the population isn't growing, the workforce isn't growing, um, they, are, they are not growing out of their debt. Indeed, their debt-to-GDP ratio has got larger and larger. It's around 200% gross debt-to-GDP ratio now. And the Japanese have got away with it this long because they owe the money to themselves. So it's not a question of owing money to foreigners, this is a question of an intergenerational transfer between the old people of Japan who own the debt and the young people of Japan who have to pay it off. We could uh, inflate our way out of the problem and that's what people have done uh, throughout history. Now, the difficulty there is how do you inflate your way out of the debt problem without the markets seeing you coming? if everybody thinks that uh, inflation in the UK is going to be 10%, then investors will rationally demand 12 or 13% interest on UK government bonds. And if the cost of servicing UK government bonds went up from two to 12 or 13 at the moment, the fiscal problems of uh, the UK would be enormous. So uh, you would have to impose some sort of capital controls uh, or what Carmen Reinhart calls financial repression to try and get out of that. Now you could argue that there are some ways that this is being done. So the banks are being made to own more government bonds. Pension funds are being made to own government bonds. So you're kind of lining up the suckers to buy the stuff that will fall in value. But it remains to be seen whether they can get away with it. Or you can default. Now if we go back to the Eurozone, now this is where um, the Europe kind of tried to opt out of the way that the Anglo-Saxons went. So the Anglo-Saxons were all in favour of letting the markets decide exchange rates. And the Europeans never liked that. They didn't like being pushed around by the market. So they tried various ways of fixing their exchange rates against each other. The the snake, which started in the 1970s. And Britain joined that and lasted either three weeks or six weeks. (laughs) Um, And uh, then, of course, the exchange rate mechanism, which we lasted a whole two years in. which were ways of trying to control the movement of exchange rates against each other within a narrow band. But again, without capital controls, it's very hard to keep those bands going. Because unless the economies are moving absolutely in sync, there will be natural reasons why one currency should depreciate and one should appreciate. Uh, And the the system didn't really allow for that. So eventually, they went the whole hog and linked all the currencies together. So they went back essentially to a gold standard, a form of a gold standard, except it's a German standard where they have linked their currencies to Germany. Now the problem with fixing the value of your currency, internally or externally, is it means that everything else in the economy has to adjust around it. So if you get a shock or a problem, then then wages and prices have to fall while the currency stays the same and people don't like seeing their wages fall, unsurprisingly. So they resist it, and in democracies they particularly resist it. So you have the problem here in Greece at the moment where in the past Greece, Italy, Spain would devalue their currency to to deal with a debt problem, and now they cannot. Uh, And they are being asked to swallow austerity for years and years and years, and it's it's no surprise perhaps that both Greece and Italy now have unelected prime ministers, technocrats running their countries because elected politicians just were unable to cope with this dual pressure of pleasing creditors and pleasing the voters at the same time. We also have the problem, in, however, in the rest of the world, in America and Britain, of how to get out of the crisis. We do have the right to uh, devalue our currencies and inflate them, but it depends. it remains to be seen how long... The markets can get away with it. And there's a problem, particularly in um, the way that fiscal policy has been used. So um, we sort of went for a shock and awe fiscal policy. So, um, government debt, to, so budget deficits of 11, 10 or 11% of GDP in any given year. And it's a bit like Spinal Tap, you know, where he has an amp that goes all the way up to 11, right? So 10 is not good enough, you have to go up to 11. But once you've gone all the way up to 11, you still, where can you go from there? Even reducing your fiscal deficit to 9% of GDP counts as a way of contracting the economy. So how do you deal with that the long-term need to bring your debt down with the short-term problem of not contracting the economy? And that's something we've become stuck in. So that is why many people will default this is not just going to be a matter of Greece defaulting. Other countries will default as well. And within countries, politicians will default on their promises to pensioners and other beneficiaries. And we're already seeing that in Britain, of course. And it will happen in America as well. Uh, and, of course, many individuals will default on their debt. So you're seeing a steady rise in uh, defaults within economies. Now, my last bit, I know I'm... I'm Need to spoken for an hour, so I've stopped here. But it's the last bit of the book is the new world order. What happens when these crises occur? What happens is that a new system emerges, and the new system is set by the creditor nation. So Britain set the terms of the gold standard, because we were the creditor nation back then. America set the terms of Bretton Woods and the 20th century system. The new creditor is China. And China will be the one that has the biggest say in how the new system works. What do the Chinese like? Well, if you go back to that trilemma, which was, if you remember, fixed exchange rates, uh, free capital movements, and independent monetary policy. The Chinese like fixed or managed exchange rates. They don't like free capital movements. So as a consequence of that, I think the new system that emerged, not next year, not the year after that, but in 10 years' time, will look more like a Chinese system, more a bit like Bretton Woods than it did before. Perhaps an agreement where... The Americans agree to limit the size of their budget deficit and the Chinese agree to move their exchange rate higher steadily over time. Uh, And in that, and unfortunately for all of those of you who want to go and work for uh, private equity hedge funds and investment banks, the financial sector will be less important. There's a great quote from Winston Churchill I like which is, I would rather see finance less proud and industry more content. Because if, cap- and if that is what's going to happen. Capital will not flow as easily around the world as it did before. There will be higher capital ratios, more regulations on banks, which means they won't make as much money and they won't pay as high bonuses as they did before. Uh, You're allowed to cheer. And <laughs> as a result of that, uh, finance will no longer uh, absorb the talents of the best and brightest of our generations like you guys. And I actually think that's a rather good thing. Um, but just to finish off, it's a good thing for the world, probably, that the dominance of the West in the system is ending. Because in the long run, although the, credit- the detonations don't repay, the creditors win. So the Spanish uh, uh, country, Spain was dominant power in the 16th century, defaulted on its debts, lost. France, finances deteriorated, lost uh, power over time. Britain, finances deteriorated after the First World War deteriorate over time. We in the West have overspent and our uh, position of power is, will deteriorate in future. The rest of the world will win. Well, there are a lot more people in the rest of the world, so that's a good thing. So on that more cheerful note, I'd like to say thank you very much.
0: Uh, thank you very much, Philip, for that uh, uh, interesting and, and fascinating uh, lecture. So what we're going to do is have some questions and answers. Uh, I'll let you ask the questions, and Philip will uh, try to answer them. I, I want to point out that at the end of that, uh, Philip will be outside uh, signing books, and so uh, when we're over, uh, if you could remain seated, and then we'll take Philip out there, and then you can... Interact with him. So let's move to questions, and what we'll do is uh, I'll point to someone. We'll move the mic, uh, and then that that way everyone can hear what you're asking. All right. So I think you were the first to raise the hand.
3: Thank you for a fascinating talk. Thank you. Um, just a couple of points. The debt can be a very highly charged political and ideological subject. I was looking at the figures um, for the Second World War, and the US spent today's equivalent of something like $10 trillion on the Second World War. I'm not sure of the exact figure, but most of that must have been financed by debt. And yet in 1945, all the markets, everyone was, seemed to be totally relaxed about the debt, and immediately the war ended, the US entered a boom that lasted for 25, 30 years,
1: which yes. okay. seemed incredible to me.
3: And um, the second point was, these financial crises very often have various serious political implications for, for countries. In this country, um, bizarrely, you know, the government, Conservatives, actually leading in the polls. And yet we have countries like um, Hungary, where we seem to have you know, a very authoritarian, could be neo-fascist regime. And let's face it, in 1933, Hitler would very unlikely have ever become chancellor except for the Great Recession. So I've got this nightmare that uh, Europe could be going down, you know, EU collapses, NATO collapses, and we go back to wars which we've had for the last thousand years before 1945.
1: Okay, Okay. well uh, I share some of that nightmare. Um, I think democracies are very good at handing out goodies. So um, we we have to remember that democracy, Western democracy is quite young. Um, Most countries have been proper democracies for a hundred years or less. Uh, And most of the time, um, the economies uh, after the, and mostly since the Second World War in fact, because in the interwar years, as you quite quite rightly say, many retreated. So most of that time has been economically uh, buoyant and with rising populations, and you've been able to promise voters um, benefits, new services, uh, and uh, on occasions tax cuts by borrowing money. If that merry-go-round stops, which arguably it has, then you're talking about allocating pain. And it's not clear that democracies are so good at allocating pain as they are at handing out stuff. And indeed, the, history of the recent history of Greece and Italy is an example of that, in that the politicians weren't able to agree amongst themselves and called in outsiders. Uh, and it's an interesting thing for democracy. We've already sort of accepted that um, monetary policy, interest rates, are set by technocrats in the form of central banks. So now we seem to be accepting that fiscal policy is going to be set by technocrats as well. So if it's not somebody internally that does it, that you'll have to go to Brussels, um, to get it approved. Indeed, um, I was being told the other day that uh, the Irish budget was discussed in the Bundestag before it was discussed in the Doyle. Uh, <laughs> the so, so that is an issue, and um, in those circumstances, uh, people will tend to turn to extreme parties because they want someone to blame. Uh, I'm reading a very interesting book called "The Myth of the Rational Voter" right now by um, a guy called Brian Kaplan. Uh, he finds, I think, he finds that 70% of Americans don't know. There are two senators per every state, uh, or the term of office of senators. If you ask Americans which are the two um, classes of expenditure that are most biggest in the federal budget, 41% of them say foreign aid, when in fact it's 1% of the the budget. So um, people uh, tend to form their views on the basis of sort of uh, ignorance, and it's easy to divert that into um, turning on... Uh, minorities within the country or foreign. So, yes, I share that other point. Now, the other point you made was about coming out of the Second World War, and, indeed, the Napoleonic War is another example. And I, the gentleman who reviewed my book very kindly for the LSE um, wanted the point about how Britain emerged in the Napoleonic War with debt. Um, now, in the case of the Second World War, or in any war, once you've been in war, most of your, a lot of economic activity is in putting people in uniform and in making munitions and other equipment, which are essentially fruitless tasks. So as soon as you um, liberate that money and put it into more productive use, you get a boom. And in France and Germany, of course, a lot of capital had been destroyed in the Second World War, so you had another boom. Uh, You also had America, which had been intact through the Second World War in terms of economy and, and made the very sensible decision, unlike people after the First World War, of supporting the European economies through martial aid. So, uh, and you further had capital controls as devised by Keynes, which meant that creditors could not punish uh, governments for the inflation that they suffered. So um, anybody who bought war loan uh, um, just as a patriotic duty in the Second World War, which uh, earned 2%, they lost the vast bulk of their money in real terms. So it was done be- um, because we had a- different reasons for a boom than we, did- we do now, and because creditors were punished. But now, looking forward, because of these demographic problems, we don't have that boost. We're not suddenly coming out of a war, um, and, and creditors can move their money overseas. So it's harder to get away with um, screwing the creditors for a
2: prolonged period.
0: Great. You yes,
2: sir. Hi, you talked about central bankers. Um, should... Uh, the performance of a central banker as guardian of the monetary system be judged in gold so for example when sterling went to a thousand pounds an ounce a year or so ago should mervyn king have been fired rather than knighted um and secondly another question regards to gold as well some of the pigs countries have a lot of gold uh, and it's always mystified me as to why the creditors or the people offering the bailouts don't demand that gold as collateral. The Finns sort of talked about it but I'm not sure what happened to that idea. Perhaps they should do and if the pigs were serious about paying back their debts they might offer the gold as collateral. Um, kind of makes you think they're probably not serious about paying back their debts. Uh, any thoughts on that? Okay,
1: uh, first one on the uh, central bank side. Uh, you get the privilege of being I'm a journalist sometimes going to the Bank of England and I was in um a lunch with Mervyn King a year or so ago, and they, and they have some pictures on the walls. And, and I was thinking, you know, if it was like Hogwarts, uh, all the former central bank governors would be sort of shouting at him and saying, you know, traditionally central banking was about preserving the value of the currency uh, and keeping inflation down, both internally and externally. So, But Mervyn King was quite happy that the pound had fallen by 20, 25%. And of course, inflation has been double the target for the last two and a half years. Not only hasn't he been fired, we've knighted him. Um, so it is a puzzle, but I, mean, I think he would say, and um, I wouldn't be completely against this at all, that there are more important things, that the, that the role of the economy, yes, uh, keeping uh, inflation down is one purpose of uh, economic policy, but also keeping the economy growing, keeping people, people in employment is arguably more important. So uh, he would say that that's been his purpose. He never promised Uh, to uh, creditors that the pound would always go up. It went up a lot in the first few years of this uh, century and now it's come down again and, um, you know, it's probably somewhere around fair value, you'd say, so that's fine. Um, So should they be judged on that? Um, I think they are being judged on their ability to support a broader aim of macroeconomic policy. But it's very interesting that it's unusually in the U.S. campaign, many of the Republican candidates uh, dislike Ben Bernanke and Rick Perry he dropped out today um, called him almost treasonous Um, so from being these wonderful experts that everybody trusted they are now they face the threat that they will be uh, political footballs Um, and your second point was why can't the um, the pigs um, Actually, a lot of people, of course, in Portugal, Italy, um, don't like that term. And I got a letter from somebody who said, uh, if you think about the UK, it's Scotland, Wales, Ireland, brackets, Northern, and England. So that makes you swine. Um, and uh, fair enough. Uh, and I got uh, another email today, which just said, um, an Italian and Portuguese, a Greek and an Irishman go out for a drink in a bar. Who pays? The German. Um, LAUGHTER uh, and um, yes I think they do have some gold but you know debts, G- Greeks debt to GDP ratio is 160% to GDP and of course if you ask a Greek they'll tell you the Germans took all their gold in the Second World War and can they have it back please <laughs> so they don't have enough gold nobody has enough gold anymore to make a serious dent in those kind of deficits uh, and of course there have been suggestions that the Greeks you know, sell the Parthenon or a couple of islands or something but uh, this doesn't go down very well
3: I'm just get okay. Yes, yeah, sir Hi. I ask this as a layman who has a morbid fascination in the kind of websites that talk about this stuff. Um, what do you make of the the catastrophist uh, viewpoint that we should all uh, buy gold, buy farmland, and buy guns to protect our assets from this kind of uh, disaster
1: well um Yes, I do. There's a kind of quasi-religious element to it that um, I remember writing something a whole bunch of years ago along the lines of, you know, do we is gold the be all and end all? And somebody emailed me back to say, you by writing that sentence, you have joined the dark side as if it was like Star Wars. Um, but if you read sort of... Uh, there's a... Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, which is about a sort of post-apocalyptic world. There's no mention of gold in there. yet. guns and food, yes, you want. But I'm not sure you'd... If you had gold and the whole system broke down, would you be able to hang on to it? Or wouldn't you know bigger people beat you up and take it away? There are, there are people who store gold in their houses, and I'm kind of thinking, well, if anybody knows that, you know, I'm not <laughs> sure that's very safe. And then there are people who say, Okay, you keep gold in the bank, but then will you be able to get to your bank if the whole thing breaks down? So, um, yes, in a catastrophist um, situation, maybe all this stuff makes sense. But I think, you know, uh, we probably, most of us, wouldn't survive anyway. I don't even really plan for that. It's like, <laughs> what do you do, what do you invest in in case of nuclear war? You know, I don't know.
0: All right. Uh, let's see, the gentleman in the black sweater on the aisle, please. The black sweater. Uh,
1: Hoodie or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> <laughs> banned from shopping. Center. Uh, so you talked
0: about how uh, you know this whole debt crisis was. I mean, as also I understand, is because of uh, debt which was used to fuel consumption. Now there are calls from the Western world that uh, that countries like China and India should take up the mantle and increase consumption. And sh- like my question is, should we follow the same suit? I mean, if you If you ask for uh, consumption, I mean, of course, China and India has a lot of savings. But if you go down that road, uh, eventually, you would want to end up using debt to fuel consumption. I mean, it should be right.
1: Well, of course, there's not much danger of that in China. China has 3.2 trillion of foreign exchange reserves. So um, you go back to the problem of: Do you really want to pile up more reserves? You know, in, in America. The Chinese are seen as stealing the march on on the Americans, right? But the the Americans are getting goods from China and the Chinese are getting little bits of paper in return. So it would seem to me that the Americans are getting the rather good bit of that deal because they can depreciate the dollar and the Chinese can't do that much about it. and there's the, the before Adam Smith really, or before the 18th century, there was the doctrine of mercantilism in economics. I was talking to one of your um, colleagues who was saying you don't do much economic history here, but mercantilism was a belief that the the best thing was to pile up lots of trade surpluses and, and gold. But if you think about what's happened in Japan, Japan piled up lots of trade surpluses in the 80s, and then they got they bought they were like. Um, the Rubes who come to get American and get sold the Brooklyn Bridge. They bought the Rockefeller Center, it plunged in price. They bought Hollywood Studios, they plunged in price. Uh, the Germans, you know, who've built up the trade services. If you go, I went around the world sort of, you know, in the debt crisis. You go to Florida, who's bought all the, lent all the money to the condos, the German banks? Iceland, Germany lent loads of money to, to uh, Iceland. Greece again, you know. So if you pile up all these services, you have to do something with it in foreign nations. And then eventually, the foreigners don't pay you back. So uh, if you go to China or India, there's plenty to be done. You know, many people are poor. There's many uh, things that could be developed, social security systems and all the rest of it, uh, which you'd think would be a better use for their money than owning treasury bonds. Um, so that does sort of make sense. I mean, we've still got this a very odd way. If you think about what should happen, capital should flow from the developed countries to the emerging markets, where the investment opportunities are greater, mm. greatest. But in fact, capital is flowing from the emerging markets to the developed world, where the, capital, the investment opportunities are less attractive. That, that doesn't seem sensible. See. Uh, the gentleman in blue. Hello. Um, I was wondering how much of the uh, British debt problem you think will be uh, inflated away, given that you
0: know, it's possibly unlikely that it will ever be paid back in full. Uh, and also you said about um, China's biggest creditor will you know, have most influence on the uh, you know, future of the uh, word finance. But given um, America's military might almost, how much do you think that will really happen given that American can simply, in a sense, refuse to be uh, told what
2: to do by another country?
1: Good. Good question. Um, how much of Britain's debt will be inflated away um, I think in the long run it will be inflated away. I think in the short run deflation is more likely. So, we, what we end up doing is we have a period of austerity. I think the government is planning seven years of austerity at the moment, but I don't think in history that anybody's really sort of pulled that off. And um, Mrs. Thatcher, in fact, if you look at the data on public spending as a percentage of GDP, when Mrs. Thatcher started and when she ended, it barely changed at all, even though everybody thinks it's all. It's actually very difficult to cut public spending. Um, Everybody says there's waste, but, you know, who knows where the waste is. Um, So I think we'll probably go through the deflationary crisis before we get the inflation. Uh, On the second, uh, America doing what it likes and China not. I mean, in a sense, it's mutually assured destruction. The Chinese own lots of American debt, which is hard for them to sell. They can't sort of ring up Goldman Sachs and say, uh, would you like what's your bid on three trillion of (laughs) treasury bonds? Um, So... um, they do have a problem from that sense, but on the other hand, uh, in the end, if, you, if your um, finances are deteriorating, you cannot pro- project the same sort of military might that you did in the past. And that happened to Britain in the 20th century, and is now, there are defense cuts in America. It's now happening to America. So they, they had a principle of being able to fight two wars at once, and now it seems to have gone down to one war at once. Of course, we'd all prefer no wars at once. but. Um, so uh, I think that over time that will change. I'm not saying when well, I'm saying China will dictate the rules that this is going to happen next week. I'm saying this is a you know 10-15 year process.
0: You,
3: sir?
1: Yes. Anything
3: more questions? you So regarding what you mentioned about the new world order um, and China being able to dictate its own uh, terms, do you also see the RMNB replacing... Uh, eventually the dollar as the world's reserve currency? Do you see the dollar losing that exorbitant privilege you've been enjoying for the last few years?
1: I, I think that's a, an, al- an alternative or possibly um, uh, coterminous, know, maybe, anyway, um, coincident, coincident possibility. Um, slowly, the Chinese are rest- uh, reducing the restrictions on the use of the renminbi. Um, but being a reserve currency is not just a matter of being the dominant economy. Britain was still, the sterling was still being used as a reserve country, currency by countries in the 50s. You know, 60 years after Britain's um, sort of relative economic peak. Um, it's all to do with, you know, trust in the authorities, rule of law and all the rest of it. So yes, I think, if we're saying in 2050, the will we were a very important reserve currency. But 2015, no. So. Um, it's more like, And I don't think we'll get through to 2050 without some sort of crisis. So that's why I think the first thing that's likely to happen is some sort of deal between the US and China to try and regulate these capital flows. Uh, let's see. Okay. Great, sure.
0: In, in, in against the wall.
2: Hi, uh, thanks. I'd like to ask you where um, inequality... Uh, wealth accumulation and redistribution fit into your uh, viewpoint. Um, in the, you At one point in your lecture, present a choice between quantitative easing um, and austerity cuts, uh, cutting of social benefits, but for many of the Western countries, when these social benefits uh, were created in the 1950s and 60s, um, our societies now are actually more productive than they were then but through a combination of mobile capital um, and the corruption of democracy by moneyed interests, um, this tax rate has decreased in the United Kingdom from 90% to uh, 20 to 30% and in the United States down to 15% for capital gains. Um, where does this inability to tax uh, a uh, global transnational cl- uh, class of capitalists now uh, fit into your uh, discussion.
1: Okay, well, no, it's a very good issue. And inequality is a very interesting issue. And I I tried to hint at why I thought it happened, which is that the the finance sector um, became so dominant after the 1980s because of free capital movements and a kind of underwriting by the central banks. And if you look at the, in the West at least, the, the vast fortunes that have been accumulated in the last 20, 30 years, there's the odd exception, you know, uh, Bill Gates, but a lot of them have been in finance. So the new billionaires, hedge fund, private equity. So it's very much a part of this system. And uh, um, Ragaram Rajan, uh, who uh, wrote a really good book called Fault Lines, um, he he um, suggests that the, this is uh, the boom in borrowing by consumers is due to the fact that the um, the wage of the media, the median wage of the uh, U.S. worker hasn't really risen in the last 30-40 years. So they've had to borrow money to um, keep their consumption going. So he uses the phrase let them eat credit Um, and that's essentially how the system's been going. I think it's not just that, I think the fact that many people now have two uh, earner families as opposed to one earner families explains part of the reason that people have kept going. Um, So yes you've seen these um, periods in in history and um, uh, when you say about tax rates, I think the, the better way to look at it is tax take as a percentage of GDP. So, for example, in the French say that the Irish are cheating by having a low corporate tax rate. But if you actually look at Irish tax, corporate tax revenues as a percentage of GDP, they are higher than French tax re- corporate tax revenues as a percentage of GDP. So you can have very high rates, but lots of loopholes, which means that uh, you don't actually collect a lot of tax. Um, So I think this is a genuine issue that you raise as to how uh, you crack down on international capital movements now um, and and how you keep tax revenues within a country. And clearly there's um, a point at which. If you raise taxes enough, all the money disappears. And if you try and keep it within the country, you just end up with this kind of incredibly inefficient economy. And we've done all that in Britain in the, in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, so, my answer is that so many countries will be cutting, will be trying to raise tax revenue in the future, that you will see, generally speaking, a move to collect more taxes from the wealthy and uh, you've already seen that in Britain, the 50% tax rate, which I did think would cause you know, hedge fund managers and the like to leave London, hasn't. So that has gone through, um, and we have managed to avoid nexus. So we'll see more countries do that. Uh, so there will be an effort to narrow the inequality that way. But what I can't decide, and you know I, I don't have all the answers at all, if you look back over history... The period from 1940 to 1980, which is called the Great Compression, when income differentials are very low, is actually unusual. Over history, over most of history, there have been huge inequalities of wealth. Downton Abbey being a good example in Britain, you know, there were people with 30, 40 servants in their houses. Um, so is that the kind of natural order of things, parish have thought, or is the 1940 to 80 period the natural order of things? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I hope it's more equal, but I, I can't be sure.
0: Let's have uh, one more question.
3: Do we have one idea? You. Your reference to banks and bankers seems to be about <laughs> banks that are owned by commercial shareholders, commercial banks. Uh, do you see any role for banks that are owned by members like the cooperative bank in Britain and the credit unions across the world? You mentioned Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Bridge occupiers have been urging People in the states to shift their resources from the commercial banks to credit unions and to cooperative banks.
1: I wonder if you see the, their role in the future. Yeah, I, I think you know the building societies were essentially credit unions when they were fed, set up. So there, there always has been a role. The the um, the problem has been that um, a lot of these societies get captured by their managers, and their managers see more exciting opportunities. Elsewhere, So they want to stop being credit The building societies stopped being building societies, not really because everybody demanded that they stopped it, but because the managers wanted to get to more exciting and profitable opportunities, earn higher salaries, and they bribed the members with shares uh, to let them p- push it through. So, yeah, I think there's going to be uh, always a role to that. I mean, um, if you want to raise lots of capital and have big, you know, uh, big banks, it's quite difficult to do that within the credit union cooperative structure. So that's why. So in the old days, the investment banks were all partnerships. The so Goldman Sachs was a partnership up until '98. Mm-hmm. But when you want a deal in these huge international capital flows, you can't do that with just the supply of capital provided by the members or the uh, employees. You have to go to the markets and you have to become incorporated. So that's why we've gone the other way. Um, but you're right. If we had, if we had more credit unions and fewer uh, all singing, dancing and Uh, supermarket banks, we probably wouldn't have had the same problems that we have in the last three years.
0: Great. So I think we're out of time. I wanted to thank the audience for coming to the public lecture. We hope to see you again soon. Uh, Please remain seated. We'll go outside to sign books, but let's have a last uh, round of applause for an excellent public lecture.